You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 31, A Luckless Legate in Liège. At the beginning of 1468, after having crushed his second uprising in Liège in the space of two years, Charles the Bold set about the all-important task of figuring out who he was going to marry. At the same time, he was once again dragged into affairs in France, as petulant nobles there began to grumble militarily about his nemesis, French King Louis XI. Although Charles and Louis XI's enmity stretched back to before either of them had taken the reins of power, it had become focused on the region of the Somme towns, those towns that Charles's father had remarkably ceded to Louis before his death, but which Charles had retaken possession of in the Treaty of Conflans, which we spoke about in the previous episode. While preparing to go to war against France once again, Liège erupted into revolt. A papal legate named Onofrio de Santa Croce was sent to Liège in order to try to find a peaceful resolution to this ongoing social unrest. And although he did a remarkable job in trying to find a pathway through the murkiness, in the end, he was unsuccessful. On the 30th of October, 1468, Charles the Bold, remarkably accompanied by a no doubt unhappy French king, Louis XI, would begin a final sack of Liège, which would see the city burn for seven weeks. Seven weeks seems like a long time, but we know that you've been burning for us for the last seven weeks as well. So here we are, we're back. We left matters in the previous episode with Charles the Bold inflicting a hefty punishment on the recalcitrant city of Liège in November 1467, after he had defeated yet another uprising at the Battle of Brusnum. Charles had strengthened his grip on secular power in the territory but in so doing this, he also attracted unwanted attention from the church. Despite being a Burgundian puppet, the prince bishop of Liège, Louis of Bourbon, was still technically the ruler, and Charles's conditions for peace were seen as an infringement on the liberties of the church. As such, this papal legate, Onofrio de Santa Croce, was appointed in February 1468, and was on his way to mediate between Charles and the subjects of Liège on behalf of the church, and with its best interests always in mind. Charles, however, had not hung around Liège for long after passing sentence upon it. Although dealing with restless urban rebellions was part and parcel of being the Duke of Burgundy, so too was his obligation to try and provide a male heir, 
Charles was once again a bachelor after his second wife, Isabella of Bourbon, mother to his only child, Mary of Burgundy, died while he was busy negotiating a peace to the end of the War of the Public Wheel in France. That marriage had been orchestrated by his father, Philip the Good, but with Philip now dead as well, so too was the pro-French stance that he had shifted Burgundy towards at the end of his reign. Charles instead looked to England and to the woman he himself had wanted to marry back in the 1450s, Margaret of York, sister to the now King of England, Edward IV. The union took some time to negotiate, and the French king, Louis XI, ever wary of an alliance between Burgundy and England, desperately tried to have it prohibited by the Pope. Richard Vaughan tells us, quote, Rumours were even spread abroad to the effect that the 22-year-old Margaret was not everything that a bride ought to be. Indeed, some went so far as to say that she had had a son. According to the Milanese ambassador at the French court, Charles scotched these rumours by ordering that anybody heard repeating them was to be thrown forthwith into the nearest river. End quote. Given Charles's track record of having people thrown into rivers, this definitely sounds like something he might have said. By March 1468, an agreement was reached and in June of that year, Margaret and her retinue were put on a ship and set off for Slaus near Bruges. Despite a French ship apparently trying to attack them on the way, she successfully made it to the Low Countries on the 25th of June. We'll let Olivier de la Marche fill us in on the details. By the by, when he says Le Clouse, he is referring to the town of Slaus. Quote, The day after the Duchess's visit, Monsignor of Burgundy made his way to Le Clouse with a small escort and entered the chateau at the rear. After supper, accompanied only by six or seven knights of the order, he went very secretly to the hotel of Dame Margaret, who had been warned of his intention and was attended by the most important members of her suite. At his arrival, when they saw each other, the greetings were very ceremonious, and then the two sat down on one bench and chatted comfortably together for some time. After some conversation, the Bishop of Salisbury, according to a pre-arranged plan of his own, kneeled before the two and made complimentary speeches. He was followed by Monsieur de Charny, who spoke as follows. Monseigneur, you have found what you desired, and since God has brought this noble lady to port in safety and to your desire, it seems to me that you should not depart without proving the affection you bear her, and that you ought to be betrothed now at this moment and give her your troth. Monseigneur answered that it did not depend upon him. Then the bishop spoke to Margaret and asked her what she thought. She answered that it was just for this and nothing else that the King of England had sent her over and she was quite ready to fulfil the King's command, whereupon the bishop took their hands and betrothed them. Then Monsignor departed and returned on the morrow to Bruges. End quote. So just like that, Charles was married again. A much more formal and elongated ceremony befitting the princely position of Duke of Burgundy was held a week later in Dummer. The flurry of festivities was apparently quite tiring for Charles, who, according to Delamarche, returned to his quarters after the mass and slept, quote, as if he were to be on watch on the following night, end quote. 
Some contemporaries claim that immediately after the wedding, Charles set out to once more wage war against the French monarch, but this doesn't seem to be the case. Vaughan even goes as far as to suggest that, at the time of his wedding to Margaret, he showed little to no interest in once more advancing towards France, perhaps giving his troth in a wedding alliance with the English was enough of an insult to Louis XI for the time being. After the nuptials, Charles thus made his way north to Zeeland and then on to Holland to make appropriately joyous entries in towns in those regions before returning to Brussels two weeks later. So while all that was happening back in Liège, the city had been left reeling in the wake of the harsh punishment that Charles had meted out in November 1467 after the second uprising. Remember that after Burgundian troops had crushed the rebellious armies, Charles had ordered the city of Liège's walls to be torn down, the guilds to be disincorporated, all of the citizens' rights and privileges to be revoked, and the city's entire constitution and system of justice to be replaced by 14 officers selected by the bishop, but who had actually sworn an oath of loyalty to the duke. Although most of the extremist rebel elements in Liège had been either killed, imprisoned, or fled after the revolt, faced with this new reality, many Liégeois remaining who had not been swept up in the earlier rebellions now found reason to become swept up in a rebellion. There was also reaction from the Vatican. The primary reason that Onofrio de Santa Croce had been sent as this papal legate was because the church felt that its liberties had been infringed upon with Charles's treaties. When Onofrio arrived, his strategy was to reconcile the people of Liège with their bishop, and then to deal with Charles. With the legate's arrival in Liège in April, spirited rumour and discussion preceded him. His presence likely gave hope to the chastened locals that, finally, their church and holy father was here to defend them and the rights which Charles had trampled all over. Onofrio spent around a month in the city, breaking one of Charles's dictates by allowing mass to be said in the main church in Liège, St. Lambert's. This was actually the first time in 12 years that he had been the Prince Bishop of Liège that Louis of Bourbon actually performed any of the religious duties that his position entailed. Ruth Putnam wrote of this moment, quote, If Onofrio thought he had reformed the bishop by forcing him into performing his priestly rites, he soon learned his mistake. That ecclesiastic speedily disgusted his flock by his ill-timed festivities, and then forsook the city and sailed away to Maastricht in a gaily painted barge with gay companions to pass the summer in frivolous amusements suited to his dissolute tastes. End quote. So having tried and failed to bring the bishop and the people together, in June, Onofrio headed off to Bruges to meet with Charles. Charles was as fervently religious as his predecessors had been, and even though he saw himself as a prince of unsurpassed virtue and glory, he was still extremely mindful of the authority of the church. He adulated the Virgin Mary, paying homage to her frequently. Regardless, he believed he held political authority over the clerical position of Bishop of Liège, 
Louis of Bourbon, a puppet placed there by his father, had always lived with an extravagance that had rankled with his subjects, and they had always been prone to revolt at the best of times. So his submissiveness to the Dukes of Burgundy meant that many people in Liège were happy to lay the full blame of everything at the feet of Charles. Charles and Louis of Bourbon met with Onofrio, and Charles treated him with respect and friendliness, but he still refused to budge on the matters of the peace terms he had concocted. Onofrio was, however, not a pushover, reminding Charles firmly that he had literally justified his attack on Liège as being, quote, to protect the church, end quote. They did not come to any agreement other than Onofrio conceding that he would give apostolic approval to any terms that the bishop and the people of Liège could agree on with the Duke. By August, Charles had been persuaded by the Counts of Berry and Bourbon to once more resume military action against Louis XI, the King of France, not to be confused with Louis of Bourbon, the Bishop of Liège. He soon sent out a call for his forces to assemble. Onofrio once more caught up with him in Brussels before he left, bringing Louis of Bourbon along with him. According to Onofrio, Charles sought reassurance that he would give approval to any terms that the bishop, people, and duke could all agree upon. Onofrio affirmed this, at which point Charles turned to his puppet bishop, Louis of Bourbon, and asked his thoughts on the matter. To Charles's immense frustration and surprise, Louis decided that, actually, he would rather like to adhere to the wishes of the estates of Liège, basically denying the legitimization of Charles's peace terms. Onofrio himself, writing afterwards, tells us, quote, The Duke turned to the bishop and said, I am amazed that you and the elders of your church think you might be wiser now than you were when these treaties were agreed to at Liège, especially as the crisis ought at that time to have sharpened your minds. You should remember that everything I did then at Liège to subdue the discontented populace was done at your request and in the interests of your country and church. I cannot understand what this ambiguity and anxiety means, nor what causes it. The bishop replied to the duke, as I understand it, most noble prince, the legate wants to ascertain from us on oath whether we entirely agree to all these clauses, and if they all promote the honour, liberty, and utility of the church. Since we shall be on oath concerning this matter, we are bound to speak the truth. Onofrio then continues, The duke was extremely annoyed on hearing this, and speaking rapidly in French, almost in a stammer, said, now I recognize the tricks and deceits of the French King Louis, who habitually rescinds afterwards with a protest what was before promised and agreed to in writing and on oath. Now, Louis de Bourbon, you're trying to follow in his footsteps, but I don't care whether or not these articles are ratified. I shall put to the sword anyone who infringes my sentence, duly promulgated and accepted. With these words... Putting his hand on the hilt of his sword, he called for his horses in order to set out with his army against the king. End quote. Onofrio's French was not great, and he had not fully understood what Charles had said to the bishop in such vehement anger and disbelief. 
Once it had been translated into Latin for him, however, he responded, quote, The bishop, glorious prince, did not speak so badly. You must allow the bishop, the elders of the church, and the leading men of the country to offer their opinions freely on this matter. He and I will take on this business and ascertain these things from them separately. I feel sure we can deal with the matter in such a way as to preserve the honor of God and of the church, and yet not inconvenience you. After all, only 10 or 12 out of the almost 50 articles in that peace treaty need to be altered or improved in some way because they seem to be damaging to the church. And in order that this can be achieved more solemnly and expeditiously, may it please your highness to send two of your counsellors to Liège with me and the bishop to deal with the matter with us. End quote. Charles, however, was not quite the magnanimous duke that his father had been and thought that allowing his counsellors to go to Liège would be showing too great a willingness to entertain the concessions which the Liégeois were hoping for. Instead, he told the legate that only he, Onofrio, could determine which articles in the peace treaty might be altered for the benefit of the church, but that nothing could be done without Charles's express permission. On August 8th, the Duke called for the mobilization of his troops against France, and two days later he departed Brussels, leaving Onofrio, the bishop, and the matter of Liège to once more respond to calls for help from French nobles against their king. Onofrio, wholly unsatisfied with the outcome of this meeting with the Duke, returned to Liège while the Bishop of Liège packed up all his stuff and his court and headed for his summer of fun in Maastricht. Charles had left his Lieutenant General, Guy of Humbercourt, in charge of Liège. With the call to arms on August 8th, Humbercourt left Liège to head off to join his Lord. At this moment, things would have looked brighter for the Liégeois than they had for years. They had a papal legate, Onofrio, who had gone into bat for them, and although they did not know it, Charles had agreed that some of his harsh peace terms may, in theory, be amended. What is more, it looked like he was going to go and be distracted by war in France, so things were looking up. The Liégeois, however... We're not going to just sit by and passively watch how things played out. With Humbercourt no longer present, many rebels and other exiles began to feel confident enough to start trying to take back castles and towns across the territory. The old demagogue, Race de Lintra, did not return from exile to carry on the fight. Rather, this next phase of the Liège Wars was to be led by a group of three men, Jean de Vilde, Vincent de Bure, and Gosuan de Strail. The first two were older knights, one from Liège and the other a banished noble from Helders. The third, Gosuan de Strail, was part of a powerful local family whose uncle was among the upper echelons of the city's magistracy and whose father had been killed in the Battle of Prostum fighting against the Duke. Despite his relative youth, Gosuan had been an active part of the revolutionary movements from an early stage and his participation had not gone unnoticed by Charles, who, when he dictated the harsh terms on Liège, had specifically denied Gosuan an inclusion in the peace, making him an outlaw. In the words of 19th century Belgian historian Godefroy Kurt, he was, quote, 
young, witty, and cheerful, he was the idol of the people of Liège. End quote. This group soon found support among artisans and workers and reached around 200 in number when they began retaking towns such as Bouillon and Tongere in early September before capturing the Meuse Pass, which would allow them access to the city of Liège itself. With the ducal presence greatly diminished after Burgundian troops had been summoned by Charles, the rebels fought their way back into the city of Liège on the 9th of September. They have been described as a ragtag, emaciated, bearded group of unfortunates whose, quote, audacity made the authorities lose their minds, end quote. Indeed, upon their arrival in town, many fled, including city administrators such as the mayor, as well as those who could be held and punished as being too pro-Burgundian. Although still small in number, the rebels' success in taking Liège this time was a clarion call for those who had remained in hiding since their last defeat by the Duke. Word went out from the city and people returned to it, ready to once more take up arms. This included many of those rebel guerrilla fighters we mentioned in a previous episode, those companions of the Green Tent with their fancy hand cannons. Now in control, the three leaders encouraged and coerced certain other influential figures in the town to give their support and a new revolutionary government was formed. Again, the papal legate Onofrio was at this point present in the town of Liège and the next day met with members of this new regime. The stance they took was one of obsequiousness to the church and even to their absent prince-bishop, Louis of Bourbon, they claimed that their issue was with the Duke of Burgundy because he had no authority over the people of Liège. They begged Onofrio to intercede with the bishop on their behalf, perhaps hoping to drive a wedge between Louis of Bourbon and Charles the Bold. Onofrio, though, was left in utter despair for the inevitable fate of the city. He had witnessed Charles's angry temperament firsthand during their meeting. He knew how much belief Charles had in his own authority, even over a prince-bishop who was supposedly meant to be of the same station as him. Onofrio was aware that brokering a peace between the angry prince, the entitled bishop, and the rebels of Liège would be nigh on impossible. He even considered simply accepting failure and departing for Rome, but he was also acutely aware that what had happened in Dinant a couple of years earlier would probably be repeated in Liège. So, instead of bailing on the whole situation, Onofrio went to talk to Louis of Bourbon in Maastricht in an attempt to once again reconcile him with his people. As Onofrio left Liège, sailing away on a boat, many of the Liégeois stood on the banks of the Meuse River feeling as though they were being abandoned by their church, literally watching their biggest hope sailing away. When Onofrio and Louis of Bourbon met in Maastricht, Onofrio deftly worked towards finding some way to put the bishop back on the same page as his people, which was a big ask because Louis had never even been on the same book as his people. He did agree to return though and to try to seek a favourable peace with Charles the Bold, but only if the leaders of this new rebellion 
left Liège and the people in the city laid down their arms. Onofrio, feeling that this was somewhere to start at least, returned to Liège with the message. He went and stood on a balcony above an assembled crowd of civic and church dignitaries in the town square next to the cathedral and gave the terms. Of course, the nominal leaders of this rebel government refused to be banished, nor disarm themselves. Onofrio tried to assuage their fears though, explicitly giving them the support of the church should they comply. Quote, Do not be afraid that after you have laid down your arms, you will be exposed to be abused. You will be given all the necessary guarantees, and if, by impossibility, the Prince Bishop fails to keep his word, I undertake to fulminate against him the most severe canonical punishments. End quote. The assembled group of leading citizens remained unconvinced, however, even while other influential town figures stood and spoke, urging the revolutionary leaders to bend. Gosuan Destrail, the young leader, was not having any of it, though. At one stage, he raised his voice, above the murmurings and demanded that they continue along the course that had seen them get this far. Quote, Hold fast and vigorously defend your liberties, which you have regained at the point of the sword without the aid of anyone. End quote. He then asked them, Do you want it? The crowd was riled up. Yes! yes! Onofrio's negotiating heart must have sunk a little. Nonetheless, he managed to convince them to half measures. The leaders would retreat to an outer suburb, Altramuse, and provided hostages to their bishop, instead of their weapons. Once again, Onofrio set off to relay the message, probably by now wishing he had chosen a different career. Meanwhile, Louis of Bourbon had left Maastricht with a thousand men, and was on an approach to Liège when Onofrio met him at Lier just north of the city. Louis was not happy, but he agreed that the rebel leaders could remain in Ultramuse as long as they disarmed. He did agree, however, that they could hand in their weapons to Onofrio instead of himself. When Onofrio brought this happy news back to Liège, they agreed. Oh, hey, there is hope yet. The legate could return with relief to Louis so that they could sign and seal the agreement he must have felt like skipping all the way back to Lier. But by the time he arrived, it seemed as though the whole vibe of Louis' entourage had changed. Some of the Ligeois accompanying Onofrio were attacked by the bishop's guards while going through the town gates, and Louis was completely aloof from the seriousness of the situation, leaving Onofrio completely fed up. Speaking of aloof... That brings us to your very favourite and very shoehorned in section of this show. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. The word aloof comes from the middle Dutch word loof, which, and you never would have guessed this, is a still used nautical term meaning windward, the side of a ship where the wind and weather are coming from. Staying aloof means to keep your ship pointing towards the weather and away from any land which might be on the leeward side which is why we use it figuratively to mean at a distance. So please, if you ever see me, come and say hello, but remain aloof by about one and a half meters. Okay, back to the show. Onofrio was no Muppet. 
He was good at playing hard to get, and when he left in a huff, Louis quickly changed his mind and begged his forgiveness and agreed to the peace terms that he had himself stipulated. They arranged one more meeting to conclude the affair, but blow me down with a feather. Louis didn't turn up. Instead, he sent a letter indicating that Charles the Bold had been in contact and hefted his influence onto the bishop. Here's a Belgian view of this action from the perspective of the very nationalistic 19th century. Quote, Thus, this unfortunate prelate, a miserable toy in the hands of his terrible relative, evaded his duty, consented to the stranger interposing himself between him and his subjects, and delivered to their mortal enemy the populations which he had, as prince and as bishop, the sacred duty to defend even at the cost of life. End quote. Indeed, when push came to shove, Louis was shoved by Charles the Bold. So, it would seem all hope was lost. Onofrio de Santa Croce had tried and tried and tried, and he had certainly made inroads into reconciling the bishop and the people of Liège so that they might unite against the imminent threat of Charles and his army. One could forgive Onofrio for just giving up. He pretty much did at this point, making preparations to leave for Aachen, accepting that little else could be done. But Onofrio was nothing if not persistent. He had promised the people of Liège that he would hold their bishop to account should he renege on the agreement. And he had reneged. So Onofrio called for one more meeting, and the two met in Tongara on September 28th. Onofrio, the mad lad, did not hold back in his fearsome rebuke of Louis of Bourbon. Quote, You are a witness of all the efforts I have made in the name of the Holy Father to reconcile you with your subjects. You saw that I had achieved unexpected results. Today, they are no longer your subjects. You are the enemy of peace. If you refuse to reconcile with them for fear of foreign princes who are thirsty for the blood of your people, all I have to do is withdraw and see if I should not inflict the canonical punishments you have incurred for having let your church be stripped. End quote. Apparently, this threat of punishment sent shockwaves through Louis and his courtiers. There were tears and exasperations of lament, and he begged some time to deliberate. Louis was obviously terrified of Charles the Bold, but also terrified of being cast aside by the church. After an hour of his advisors begging him to find peace with his people, he once again agreed to comply and come to Liège on the 30th. Onofrio was no sucker, though, and he demanded this promise in writing. The great feeling of despair which had hung over Liège since Louis had stood them up lifted the next day when Onofrio returned with his letter that promised peace. Liège went into celebrations and Onofrio was their hero. The people immediately went to work cleaning, gathering and preparing to give a dignified and respectful welcome to their returning bishop. When the next day, the 30th of September arrived, Liège was ready. Following the morning mass, Onofrio was about to lead a great procession out of the city to meet Louis. That is when somebody pushed a letter into his hand. Poor old Onofrio. You can really imagine what a horrible feeling would have gone through him as he read the contents of this letter. 
It was from Louis, of course, saying that he would not make it to Liège for some time. Onofrio replied with a message that he had better get there as soon as humanly possible, and then he set out himself to once again go and deal with this frustrating individual. Talking about things that are frustrating, here's an ad break. Remember that if you'd prefer to listen to us ad-free, all it takes is a buck per show on patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. On the other side of the break, we will see both Onofrio's efforts and the city of Liège go up in flames. Hello, everyone. I'm Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, starting not with the beginning of the war itself, but instead almost two decades earlier, to try and determine why and how the nations of the world would find themselves in a worldwide conflict just 20 years after the devastation of the First World War. You could find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome back. At around this moment, when the flames of confusion, disappointment, anger, and fear were all well-stoked within the broken confines of Liège's torn-down walls, word arrived that Guy of Humbercourt, Charles's right-hand man in Liège, had amassed an army and was about to retake lands lost to the rebels. Onofrio decided that he had best try to deal with him, so he went and met Humbercourt and Louis of Bourbon in Tongara on October 9th. Humbercourt, though, refused to even talk with the papal legate, nor allow the people of Liège safe passage to go and talk with their bishop. A feisty exchange between them saw Onofrio accusing Humbercourt that his intent was vile, more to do with booty and rapacious bloodlust than the noble pursuit of protecting church lands. Although many of the negotiations had seemed fruitless from the beginning, this is probably the point at which any peaceable conclusion to any of this became truly impossible. So the next day, a large group of Ligeois, led by two of their leaders, Jean de Velde and Gossuan de Strail, stunningly launched a surprise attack on Tongeren. Camines reckons that this was incited by two ambassadors which the French king had sent to stir up trouble. This is doubtful, but possible. With relative ease, the rebels overcame the meager defences. Like most towns in the territory, its walls had also been ripped down according to the terms of Charles's peace treaty. The three most significant men in Tongara, Humbercourt, Louis of Bourbon and Onofrio, were all captured by the rebels. Humbercourt was secretly let go after convincing one of the nobles there to release him on ransom. According to Comines, this nobleman was thereafter killed by the rebels for doing this. The other two, Onofrio and the bishop, were taken back to Liège. On the way, the other rebel leader, Vincent de Buren, came out to meet them with a great crowd of celebrating Liégeois. This was not a friendly crowd, and from Comines, quote, The people were exceedingly overjoyed at the taking of their bishop, there were also taken with him that day several canons of the church whom the people equally hated and killed five or six of them. Among the rest, there was one Monsieur Robert, an intimate friend of the bishops. They slew this Robert in the bishop's presence, cut him into small pieces, and in sport 
threw them at one another's head. Those who fled gave the alarm to the whole country, and it was not long before the Duke had the news of it. End quote. During all of this, Charles the Bold was camped in the town of Peron, and his focus was split between the goings-on in Liège and diplomatic negotiations with the French. Louis XI, the French king, was once more showing a willingness to talk, and peace negotiations were tracking reasonably well. They did have to overcome a political obstacle when the Burgundian diplomats got upset that their seats were six inches lower than those of their French counterparts. I hate when that happens. Nonetheless, the result was something called the Treaty of Ham, which sounds delicious, and was signed on October the 1st. This treaty denied the Liegeois rebels something which they had been so certain of when they began this phase of the rebellion, and upon which their fate greatly depended. Burgundian troops would not be crossing the Somme, nor taking on the forces of the French king. A week later, the French ambassador arrived in Peron to make an offer to Charles directly. This was for a firm and lasting alliance between France and Burgundy. Charles immediately sent a message to his army, which had been preparing to take on France, telling them to forget that and prepare for a march on Liège. Three days later, in a very bold move of his own, Louis XI himself showed up in Peron, ostensibly to establish an end to the enmity which the two had shared since they were young. This was perhaps not the smartest move by Louis XI. Sure, he may have been showing impeccable trust in the honour of the Duke of Burgundy by showing up at his door, but he was left in a vulnerable position. As you may remember, Louis XI had been extremely active in encouraging rebellion among the subjects of his rival, and according to some, the Liegeois rebels had consistently expected a French army to turn up and save them during various phases of this whole thing. Louis had sent agent provocateurs to Liège to further stoke the flames of rebellion. According to some historians, Charles was well aware of this. So, when Louis turned up in Peron, what with all the trouble in Liège, Charles's response was to lock him up for three days while he thought seriously about having the French king killed. Eventually, though, he simply forced him to join the Burgundian march on Liège. The terms of the Treaty of Ham were somewhat ratified and they greatly favoured the pretensions of Charles. They confirmed prior agreements between the two rulers, such as at Conflans three years earlier. They allowed for an alliance between Burgundy and England and generally said that if the French monarch reneged on the agreement, the Burgundian lands would become totally free of French jurisdiction. By the by, the French monarch would soon hold the agreement in contempt later telling foreign diplomats that the whole thing had been foisted upon him unfairly and that he would soon be getting his revenge on the Duke of Burgundy. Such eventual obstruction, however, was yet to unfold. Now the French king and Burgundian duke, having pledged to be BFFs, were moving together towards Liège. They were accompanied by a great many knights and noblemen, including powerful members of the House of Bourbon, the younger brother of whom was the maligned bishop of Liège, Louis. Apparently, when the Liegeois rebels took Tongera and captured the Prince Bishop, word went around that he had been killed. 
This has been suggested as having been motivation for the powerful Bourbonite faction to encourage the King of France to join in this strange allied action. Even when it was known that the Prince Bishop was in fact still very much alive, his safety and the honour of the family would have been of major concern to the powerful Bourbonite clan. On the 13th of October, this mishmash combined Burgundian French force retook Tongeren. Everyone's favourite papal legate, Onofrio, was still in Liège, imploring the rebels to not engage with the army sweeping through the countryside on a pillaging rampage of destruction. But he could not contain them for long. On the evening of October 21st, a few thousand of them flowed out of Liège, led by Jean de Vilde, Vincent de Bourda, and Gossuin de Strail, and they began to counter-attack when they could. The revolutionary forces had managed to capture a bunch of horses when they had taken Tonga, and despite, of course, many of their force never having fought on a horse before, they took this recourse with much remorse. You like that? They saddled up on the 22nd, rode out to fight some Burgundians around the town of Lantin, just outside of Liège, and they were completely wiped out. In Liège, the air was now wrought with desperation and despair. Onofrio and the bishop, along with several hundred others, sought refuge in one of the city's towers. It was on the day following the disaster at Lantin that word began to spread around Liège that the French king was in the company of the hated duke. This was a dagger blow for anybody still holding out hope for assistance from Louis XI. Onofrio, being as brave as ever, decided to make one of his classic last-ditch attempts and tried to convince the town leaders to let him and the bishop go and talk to Charles. After much debate and disagreement, they were finally permitted, and they made their way out of the doomed town, escorted by Jean de Vilde and his men. After passing through Lantin and witnessing the destruction from the day before, they were inexplicably captured by a brother-in-law of the bishop and the group was assaulted. Louis of Bourbon was freed from having to return to the people who he had let down so many times, and Onofrio was eventually released, never receiving a chance to talk with Charles the Bold. According to Kurt, when he left for Maastricht, Onofrio was, quote, drunk with bitterness and humiliation, end quote. Charles and his Franco-Burgundian death train marched on. On the same day that Onofrio and Louis of Bourbon were captured by Charles's forces, the 25th of October, they took the castle at Falais, just west of the town of Liège. In Liège, an increased sense of panic descended and spread across a population that knew exactly what was coming for it. In recounting these events, Alain Marchandise and his colleagues say that the rebel leaders preferred fighting to the death rather than being captured and sought any means by which they could stall, delay, or confront the impending doom. One such idea was to line the remnants of the deconstructed town walls with women and children, employing them as human shields. Another was to set all of the churches on fire. On the 26th of October, the Liegeois sallied forth once more, making a surprise attack on a sleeping Burgundian camp and engaging in skirmishes around the city. Jean de Vilde lost his hand in the course of these sallies. He barely made it back to Liège, struggling over one of its wretched remnants of a wall before passing out. He would not recover. 
The next day, Burgundian troops moved into the surrounding suburbs, and there they were joined by their duke, with the King of France in tow. There were some within Charles's ranks who urged his mercy upon the city, which he had already forced into submission. It is always interesting to compare the acts of the son to those of the father. Philip the Good had often shown practical compassion when facing revolt from his low country subjects, understanding that the actions he took in the present would have ramifications on conditions in the future. One of Charles's advisors, soliciting a softer touch towards Liège, tried to caution him that, as dominant as his position may be now, situations and events are dynamic and can change drastically. Quote, All of your past glory, that of you and your house, may be reversed and returned to a dream. End quote. By the 29th of October, the Liegeois rebels were clutching at straws, desperate for any avenue they could find to get themselves out of this. One such attempt happened that night when a strike force of around 600 men, led by Gossuan de Strail, embarked upon a covert mission to climb a hill, sneak into the camp in which the Duke and the King of France slept, and try to kill them both. This event has gone down in history as the attack of the 600 French in Montois, thanks to Comines, who erroneously wrote that the attackers had come from the mountainous Franchimont region of Liège. It is a pretty remarkable story, which we do not have time here to go deeply into. We're already like an hour into this episode. But it was like a medieval Hail Mary, last gasp attempt to prevent the inevitable. When facing up against overwhelming odds, why not go for the jugular and try to spectacularly kill both the King of France and the Duke of Burgundy? Ultimately, the attack failed and both Louis XI and Charles survived. We could probably make a whole episode about just this story. So that's what we've gone and done. And since it's peripheral to the chronology but still a great yarn, we've put it up as an exclusive episode for our Patreon supporters. We'll explain that a bit more later on. Charles's army was diverse and numbered in the tens of thousands. It was composed of soldiers from an array of his territories, such as Picardy, Flanders, and Holland. His officers included members of the high nobility from Burgundian, Imperial, and French territories, and a strategic plan saw different groups, under different leadership, attacking different gates into Liège. The next day was Sunday, and those in the Duke's advisory who were urging temperance, which included the King of France and the Bishop of Liège, likely tried to use the holy day as a reason to delay the attack. It has been suggested, though, that Charles's determination to go forth even though it was Sunday indicates that he felt the total destruction of Liège had a godliness about it. The inhabitants of the town, fully aware of what was coming, did not think it would be upon them so quickly. So on this Sunday, the 30th of October, 1468, the attack and sacking of Liège began. It was not long before Charles's various troops occupied the city streets. Witnesses tell us that while some sections of the population fought on bravely, in defiance of the sorrow which they had somehow escaped a year before, it was hopeless. Soon the spirit of the city was in as much ruin as its former fortifications. The sacking was planned and organized, although historians disagree on the extent of violence and destruction. 
It was divided into four sections, and these were assigned to different parts of this diverse army, who were then permitted to pillage whatever valuables they could find, except for what was in churches. This last part seems to have been largely ignored, however, and later records would find clerical valuables from Liège in places all around Europe. Charles did forbid some of his leading nobles from looting St. Lambert's Cathedral, but then he went about doing it himself. Some letters from soldiers who were there to complain about having to stand guard on the market and miss out on all the best booty claim that the violence and deprivations were immense. As Marchandise writes, quote, Whatever their age, sex, or social condition, no Liège citizen was safe from ducal wrath, and many of them, especially the soldiers of the rearguard, were drowned, taken to arms, or hanged publicly. End quote. The truth on all this is a bit cloudy, though, and Vaughan remains convinced that most people had fled already and that there was not that much large-scale murder. Charles did make somewhat of a moratorium on violence towards women, and particularly clerical women, as he had done during the earlier sacking of Dinant, but according to witnesses, the rampage was such that these were simply unenforceable. Thousands fled, adding to the many who had already departed before the unleashing of hell. Refugees from Liège would be seen in other towns and regions for months and years to come. Surely their accounts, both first-hand and second-hand, added to the scale of violence and destruction with each retelling. It is unclear whether Charles always intended to completely destroy the city, as he had done to Dinant. Louis XI departed Liège on the 2nd of November. Charles had basically forced him to come along and witness how powerful he was, how if you crossed him, he would literally burn you to the ground. Even if Louis had not sent military support to the Liégeois, he had certainly been giving them tacit support, as he did to anyone he thought would cause disturbance to the stability of Burgundy. Charles's domination in Liège was not in Louis's interest, so making Louis watch this was really Charles making quite the statement indeed. There is a story that it was on his return from escorting the French king back towards France that Charles made the decision to completely destroy Liège. He would burn it three times for each of the rebellions its people had committed against him. Carpenters and workers from other places, such as nearby Maastricht, were called to come to the site and dismantle houses nearest to the city's churches. This was so the churches would avoid the inferno that Charles was about to unleash. The rest of the city was stripped bare, and on the 3rd of November, it was put to flame. When Charles himself departed on the 9th of November, he left some Limburgers, traditional adversaries of the Liegeois, to oversee its continual destruction. Another story has it that they lit a new fire every morning for seven weeks each time in a different location in the now charred, scarred, and marred town. As the Burgundian army departed and participants of all ranks returned home, there would be multiple accounts from all over Europe of the loaded wagons of stolen goods from Liège that accompanied them. When Charles left, it was not to go back to Bruges or Brussels. In his mind, this job was not yet done. He knew that while the city of Liège was a powerful hotbed of rebellion, it alone did not sustain the rebels. Charles was also concerned about that region of the Franchimont, 
the wooded and hilly regions south and east of the city which had long harboured anti-Burgundian rebels. It was also where Kamines had told him that that strike force that had tried to kill him had come from. In the Franchimont was where the embers of dissent found oxygen whenever a large uprising was crushed. Charles was going to extinguish it once and for all. The freezing winter weather led to a lot of unwillingness on behalf of his captains, who were all, remember, looted up and wanted to go home with all their riches. But Charles was determined and said he would lead the campaign personally. Jean de Hainin, who had been witness and participatory to these events, gives us an insight into how fervently Charles sought a result that would mean no more rebellions in Liège. Quote, He proposed to go in person and anyone who wished could follow him. And though it was freezing very hard so that many a horse fell on the road because of the ice and there was a great deal of snow, nevertheless he set out and arrived at the castle and town of Franchimont. They met little or no resistance there and the Duke himself went in person through the woods on foot and on horseback after other fugitives who had made lodgings and huts to take refuge in. Some were killed, some taken, others fled, but all their refuges and huts were burnt down and all their belongings taken or burnt so that they lost them. Likewise, the town of Franchimont was burnt and the villages around it, end quote. And by such means, Charles really aimed to finish that Liegeois rebellion. Although the status of Louis of Bourbon as the Prince Bishop remained intact following the victory of Charles, he was forced to sign over a large part of the city of Liège to the Duke of Burgundy. This became known as the Isle of the Duke and became the administrative and military base for Burgundian operations in Liège. It was then occupied by pro-Burgundian settlers. For all intents and purposes, Liège was now Burgundian. As we have seen, Charles had a very different temperament to his father and with his decisive defeat of Liège, he had likely confirmed in his own mind that this aggressive approach towards limiting urban rights and identities was the correct one. He would continue encroaching upon those rights in towns all across his low country territories, sometimes with success and often not. Charles's pretensions as a prince of impeccable right would have, by the end of 1468, been peaking. Charles wanted a crown, just as his father did. The only person, though, who could give him one was the emperor. And if Charles was to ever succeed in this, he would need to control as much imperial territory to leverage as he could. However, there were still major areas of the Low Countries that were not yet under his control, namely Helders and Friesland. And it is there where our story will take us in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to History of the Netherlands. We know we have been absent for a while, just taking a summer break. But we're back in our second wave for this year. And judging by the destruction we saw in this episode, it's going to be deadlier than the first. We mentioned earlier about how we have made a special bonus episode for our Patreon subscribers. This is a, an imagining of the story of the 600 Franchi Montois who tried to kill the Duke of Burgundy and the King of France. We want to keep the main show free and accessible for everyone, and we always will. But we also want to give back to those whose generosity is the only reason 
we can keep doing this show. So for that reason, we are going to try to produce bonus content more often. If you want to hear more stories, which will be probably tangential to the main chronology, but perhaps a bit excessive and not quite required within it, or if you want to hear episodes without ads, or if you just want to give us money, go to patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. We have some new members to be ordained within the order of the golden Patreon pledge today. If you don't hear your name now, don't get upset. Your time will come, young knight, or knightess, or just whatever you choose to be. Today, we want to induct Stefan the Ranger Campmans, Paul Truffers Truffasu, or Trufasu, or Trufasu. Couldn't decide which one. You get all three. And Matthew Brad Crouch Kokian. Google search that one. Yeah, <laughs> or maybe not. Thanks so much for getting behind us and giving us such great support. Don't forget to get in touch with us online by email, by Twitter, at History of NL. We're the Dutch history channel that talks about cricket a lot. Either way, thanks a lot for listening and see you next time. Doei! Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.